Like Greg said, this is Luke 24, verses 13 through 34. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the, uh, the things that have taken place th- there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those uh, who were there with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to where they were going, he walked ahead as if, they were going, as if he was going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered there together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. This is the word of God to the people of God. Thanks be to God. Pray together. Come, Holy Spirit, come and open our hearts and minds to the Word of God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I'm going to tell you here at the start that this is a two-parter. We're going to look at uh, basically the first half of this passage this morning. And then again next week, we are going to take a look at uh, Luke 24 in particularly in the context of the Eucharist, of Holy Communion. So um, 
Stay tuned. Come back next week so that we can continue to study this passage together. And let me just say how, how blessed I am to see uh, all these folks watching this morning. I keep my phone open uh, to uh, our church service, and uh, I, I, I don't know how we could possibly do this once we get back together, <laughs> but uh, it is so encouraging to me to see who's, who's commenting and the way you interact with each other, as Jeremy has said. Uh, and, and how you're praying for one another. This is a, a wonderful gift of technology, so we thank God for that. Um, I want to begin this morning by just asking you a question. Have you ever experienced something where things didn't turn out the way you expected? Have you ever had one of those surprise kind of moments? And it may not have been a good one where things didn't unfold as you thought they would. Many years ago, a young pastor, as a young pastor, I was officiating at a wedding for a couple who had met in college and they had felt, uh, felt uh, like that they'd been drawn together, they belonged to one another, they fell in love, and uh, so they asked me to do their ceremony. And the premarital counseling went great and so did the wedding, it was really wonderful. Um, they seemed to flourish in the years that followed in their respective careers. They had children. Uh, things were going swimmingly, as they say. They were living happily ever after until they didn't. Uh, got a letter in the mail, multi-page letter, handwritten by the wife. She was depressed and disillusioned with life, the challenges of rearing children and and being married to her workaholic husband were very, very hard. And she said this, marriage is not what I expected it to be. 20 years ago, my dad and mother took all of their adult children and their spouses um, and the six grandchildren, including the girlfriends of some of the grown grandchildren, which was my two boys, on a week-long Caribbean cruise at Christmas. I don't know what it cost, but it must have been a small fortune for my dad to do this for his family. He said it was his last hurrah, uh, and that was 20 years ago. Well, only hours before our planned departure, this was in mid-December, Christmas was drawing near, um, I slipped on a patch of ice in our driveway, fell into the yard, and badly broke my leg. In fact, it was so bad that they couldn't set it. They just put a temporary cast on it and said, it'll be at least a week to 10 days before we can operate on it, but you're going to have to see an orthopedic surgeon. Well, after spending a couple of hours in the ER, getting some pain meds, going back to the house, um, we decided as a family that we were going to go for it. That dream vacation shall live in infamy. It was not a good experience for me. I was on crutches in a cruise ship and riding around in a wheelchair on, uh, on, on cushy carpet. And I could not have been more miserable at times, and I know that Connie also suffered with me. It wasn't what we expected for our Christmas cruise. Not long after that, um, I mentored a couple of seminary students at Asbury who were preparing for full-time ministry as pastors. Both were very bright, gifted young men. I had high hopes for the two of them. 
Um, they graduated, they were appointed to churches, and one um, seemed to be doing quite well based on the reports I was hearing. The other really hadn't heard from him, but I assumed they had long careers ahead of them. And then I discovered at some point just a few years after that that they both were no longer pastoring local churches. There wasn't any kind of moral failure to my knowledge. They were still married to their wives. One, however, had become a teacher and the other was a traveling salesman. Best I could tell, they hadn't left the faith. They were still involved in a church, but for very complicated reasons, they explained, they had left full-time ministry. Basically, they said the same thing. Despite being called by God and well-trained for ministry, pastoring a church was a lot more difficult than they imagined. Uh, it was very discouraging, and the disappointment was just too much. It was not what they expected. Life is like that, isn't it? I mean, it's full of disappointment. We don't expect a marriage to end in divorce on our wedding day, do we? <laughs> Um, we don't expect a much-loved job to end suddenly with a layoff as it did for someone in our church this past week. And we certainly don't expect the entire world to be turned upside down with a pandemic of historic proportions. This is not what we expected April to be like this year. I had high hopes for 2020, especially with my retirement coming. I never imagined could not have conceived that my last months in ministry would be spent on a shutdown, a stay-at-home order, sheltering in place, separated from a congregation that I love so much, that I wanted to uh, have some closure with, to celebrate with in these final weeks in Georgetown. In the scripture, Marcus read from Luke's gospel, about two followers of Jesus who were walking home to a village called Emmaus. Now, let me just say parenthetically, we don't know where Emmaus actually was located. It apparently just kind of disappeared off the map as time passed. Maybe it was destroyed in a time of, of, of trouble, of war, etc. But there's guesses, but no one knows for sure where this little place was. The scripture says it was about seven miles from Jerusalem, which if you think about it would be anywhere from, you know, two and a half to three hour walk. One was named Cleopas, the other is anonymous. His name is not mentioned. And they were not among the twelve uh, or the eleven that survived after the crucifixion, uh, but counted among that larger group of men and women who considered themselves to be disciples of Jesus, who also followed along with the group, the insider group of 12 disciples. As they struggled to make sense of this tragic end of Jesus' life and also this reported resurrection that the women had talked about, that Peter and John had spoken of, Jesus himself comes near to, to them and he begins to walk with them. However, Luke tells us something very interesting. It's, it's kind of bizarre. He says their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. 
They had no idea this was in fact the same Lord who had been crucified three days earlier on Good Friday. We don't know how this occurred. Perhaps in his resurrected state, Jesus did not entirely resemble himself before he rose from the dead. Uh, maybe he had his head covered. He was concealing his appearance in some way. Or maybe it was a miracle. Maybe their eyes truly were kept from understanding or seeing Jesus as he was. After all, they were uncertain about this resurrection rumor, and they certainly knew he had died at Golgotha. We just don't know. But the point is, Jesus didn't want them to know who he was at this point. I think this is unquestionably one of the purposes that God is working out in the world right now. It is hard for us to see Jesus in this earth-shaking event that has affected most of the world and has been earth-shaking, especially for us in the United States, where we've had the most casualties and the most infections. Uh, some are in, undoubtedly angry with God right now. They, they're questioning wh whether he really cares. And as they live with the consequences of this, unemployment, lost wages, not being able to pay their bills, the threat of illness and sickness. And then you think about 51, 52,000 people who have died thus far in all of the grieving, the layers of sorrow and grief that extend out from that. That numbers in the hundreds of thousands of people, cities, entire cities grieving like New York City. Others are questioning whether God even exists. I've read some interesting uh, opinion pieces that have been published in newspapers by people that, that say this actually proves there is no God. Because if God cared, we wouldn't be going through this. And many are increasingly anxious. People are despondent and depressed, and for good reason. Could it be, could it be that the entire world, including the church, desperately needs a come-to-Jesus moment? Could it be that there is some greater divine plan at work here? I don't pretend to have the answer. I don't know what God is up to, but I wonder this. I pray through this every single day. I dream about this. It's, it's so heavy on my heart. And the word, as I've told you, that continually comes up in my time of prayer is that we need to repent. We need to repent, which fundamentally means to change directions to leave behind an existence that is not centered on the life of God and the hope of God that is found in Jesus Christ, to turn away from our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our immorality, and turn unto Jesus. Repentance means a change of directions, 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Jesus asked these two men, he says, what are you talking about? They stopped. They stopped walking, and they looked at him with sadness, the Scripture says, with sadness in their eyes, and they said, where have you been the last few days? I mean, have you been under a rock somewhere in Jerusalem? Don't you know about the things that have happened there? 
And Jesus says, what things? And they tell him about the arrest and the crucifixion and the death of the man they thought was the Messiah. They tell him about the missing body from the tomb and and the rumor of a resurrection that very day, that morning, only hours before. And then they say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Man, those words are loaded, aren't they? We had hoped. In other words, this alleged Messiah and his whole movement of which we were a part was not what we expected. Talk about dashed hopes and defeated dreams. That's where these two disciples were. They just get added to the list of doubters. Thomas and the twelve who didn't believe until they saw with their own eyes. The women who also wondered, what is going on here? And the angel said, he is not here. He is risen just as he said. These two men, followers of Jesus, just like the rest of us, are trying to make sense of God's purposes in a time of suffering and loss. And then Jesus says to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. This is not sweet, kind, comforting Jesus speaking at this moment, is it? I mean, he is is reprimanding them. He is rebuking them that, that like fools they have disbelieved. They have failed to trust in all that they heard, all that they witnessed, all that he taught them. And then we see why the two were kept from recognizing the risen Jesus. As they resume their walk together with Jesus, he explains to them in great detail the Old Testament beginning with Moses and the prophets and why it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and die. By the way, this, is, this, this verse alone shows us why we need the Old Testament, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it, it's critical to understanding what comes next in the New Testament. And there was no New Testament at this point. The Scriptures were the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, Moses and the prophets and, and, and I believe that what this shows so clearly, not only is the importance of the Old Testament, but Jesus doesn't want his followers to see him only in his resurrection glory. He wants them to appreciate the continuity of the work of God, the plan of redemption from the very beginning, from Genesis, through the prophets, and into what shall come, those scriptures that will be written down and shared among those in the early church. But, but he also wants them to understand first the need for his suffering, his atonement, and his death. It would be easy to forget about that because nobody likes pain. And certainly death by crucifixion, which was a, a horrific way to put anyone to death. 
It would be easy uh, to just grab hold to this reality of resurrection and celebrate the glory and, and, and the, uh, the triumph of Jesus over the grave and to forget what had to come first. One preacher concludes that there was just no place in their messianic theology for a dying Messiah. It wasn't that the Old Testament didn't say it. It was they weren't interested in believing it. They didn't follow Jesus because they thought they were going to be persecuted because all of the disciples would die a martyr's death. They followed Jesus because they thought they might get to rule with him and his kingdom. That is very clear in a number of passages in the Gospels. And even as Jesus is about to ascend to the Father in the book of Acts, chapter 1, they're still wondering, is this the time? Is this the moment? When the victory is going to finally come to Israel over the Roman oppressors. They wanted to be in on that. They wanted to be in on the military victory. The reign and rule of Christ. They really didn't want to die with him. And probably wanted to get as far away from Golgotha, from the crucifixion as possible. Their hopes like ours, would be renewed with an empty tomb. But the path that we walk with Jesus, the path they walked from Jerusalem to Emmaus, always includes loss, self-denial, and sharing in His suffering. Always. I mean, that is one of the things that makes Christianity so helpful at a moment like this. So deeply meaningful. Uh, a pivotal moment earlier in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, occurs when Jesus asks the twelve, He says, who do you say that I am? Peter, maybe in some sense speaking for the entire group, says, the Messiah of God. And Jesus then responds, Luke 9 says, in an amazing way. He does not say, wow, Pete, that's awesome. <laughs> That is so incredible. Let's pray the sinner's prayer together. Let's get you baptized and join the church. And you're going to be happy in Jesus because of this. No, Jesus sternly ordered Peter and the others not to tell anyone what Peter had just done and said. He says, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then he says something even more shocking. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up the cross daily and follow me. I'd just soon forget about that part of the gospel, wouldn't you? For those who want to save their life will lose it, Jesus says. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? When this pandemic began over two months ago, seems like a year ago, doesn't it? But when it began over two months ago, what did most people do? Well, there were a few remarkable souls that rushed to the front lines. That, that have been working day and night to try to find a treatment and a vaccine, who have put their own lives at risk. Many healthcare workers have died 
from COVID-19 because they were caring with people who were infected with the coronavirus. There are many, many heroes in this battle, hundreds of them. There were a few of us believers who, sensing God was up to something, humbled ourselves, continue to cry out to God in prayer with tears and anguish for our nation and world, just as Jesus did in Gethsemane. But there were a lot of people that panicked and started hoarding toilet paper and pasta sauce and hand sanitizer, responding in irrational and self-centered ways. Frankly, I'm amazed at, at, at how shallow our understanding of the gospel is in the American church. We want reassurance that everything's going to be all right. We want the coronavirus to magically disappear. We want assurances that our 401k, our stock portfolio will rebound and life will soon return to normal. Friends, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And I don't think the new normal for us as Christians, as churches, and as a nation is going to resemble the old normal. And what that ought to do in us is stir a greater hope, a greater confidence, a greater trust in Jesus Christ. Um, we want Jesus, don't we? I want Jesus in my life. I trust that you want Jesus in your life. But it's not just the risen Lord that we have to, to embrace. It's also the suffering Messiah. And I think that's, that is a big piece of this encounter on the road to Emmaus. Peter would later write in his first epistle in a cultural context of oppression, persecution, epidemic, starvation, and hunger... Uh, suffering that is well beyond what we are dealing with right now in the United States. He would write these words. The end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. We may not be too disciplined in our eating right now. <laughs> okay? Uh, but, but we need to be on our knees in prayer. Uh, early in the morning, in midday, late afternoon, and at night as we go off to sleep. And for some of us on those sleepless nights when we're tossing and turning, we need to be crying out to God. He says, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. This is a time for love to prevail. This is a time for us to remember what Peter says here. He says, for love covers a multitude of sins. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through, Peter writes, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in His suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing His glory when it is revealed to all the world. And that is the not yet of our salvation. That's out there sometime in the future. It may be soon, it may be another thousand years, only God knows. But, but because we share in His suffering, we will one day have the joy of seeing His glory. You know, the, the life of discipleship is more than just waking up to Jesus. 
you know, and, and having a happy saying on our heart and feeling happy and joyful and gay. It's about walking with Jesus on a road that includes trials and troubles. It's not what we expect, but it's what God wills. These three continue to walk and talk together until they reach the exit ramp for Emmaus. <laughs> and Jesus pretends to be going on, leaving them behind. And they say, hey, hey, wait a minute. Let's, uh, let's keep talking. Why don't you come to our house and let's have a meal together. It's getting late. The sun is going down. Stay with us. Now keep in mind, they still don't know who he is. So Jesus goes to their home and he sits down at their table. We began with this wonderful call to worship coming from Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where Jesus says, you know, I'm standing at the door, I'm knocking. I will come in and have a meal with you, but you got to welcome me. you got to invite me in. And that's exactly what these men do. They invite him in. And in this act of hospitality and welcome, Jesus sits at their table. And when he takes the bread and he breaks it and blesses it and he gives it to them, their eyes were immediately open and they realized they had been walking with Jesus. Hallelujah. They've been walking with Jesus and he vanishes from their sight. And they say to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road? While he was opening the scriptures to us. This was a meal that caused spiritual heartburn. <laughs> and, and their lives would never be the same because of it. And so I ask you in the midst of this pandemic, this struggle, this time of trial and trouble, that we're all in together, in it together. Is your heart burning with Jesus? Are you feeling his presence in your life day by day? These days are not what we expected, but it's what we got. And Jesus has to be enough for all of us. And it could get worse before it gets better. Jesus has to be enough for all of us. And even though in this story, Jesus vanishes, the sun is set, and it's dark, these two men with burning hearts and renewed hope walk all the way back to Jerusalem, seven miles. Just imagine how long that took in the dark. And when they arrived, they found the eleven and others all together on that Easter night, and they told them what had happened on the road to Emmaus and how Jesus had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Christ, the hope of glory, is in you, friend. He is in me. He is always with us and always for us. This will be continued next week. Glory to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.